Ephesians chapter 3, and this morning we'll be looking, our second look, at Paul's apostolic prayer, for which the entire chapter is set up in delivery. And God willing, we will finish um, the prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, a little heads up of where we're going. Next week, I plan to do a sort of review of these first three chapters, the first half of the book, um, as I believe, especially this prayer bridges into the second half. And then we're going to pause our study of Ephesians for five weeks as we do a series on our creaturely identity and cultural confusion, dealing with um, some of the pressing cultural issues pushing into the church, issues of abortion, uh, homosexuality, transgender, transgenderism, and, and how to think through that, how to respond to biblically implications for that. And then, God willing, we'll return to our study of Ephesians. So we're going to Close out chapter 3 this week. Next week we'll do that summary message and then pause for five weeks to go through that series. That's the plan as it is. You'll find the, uh, the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. And on the back side of the notes is the text in the event that you don't have a Bible handy. I'd like to begin by reading um, Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with All the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Lord God, we too echo this prayer, and we ask that by your Spirit and according to the riches of your glory that you would give to us to be strengthened with power in our inner being, that Christ may more fully take up residence in our hearts through faith, and that as a result we would be on a firm foundation rooted and built in your love for us, and that from that vantage point, we might more fully see the height, the width, the breadth, the depth of your love for us. We pray that in so doing, you would fill us fully, and in so doing, you would be glorified in us to all ages. Amen. Now, we've been moving deliberately through this closing prayer in Ephesians. And one of the reasons for that is I, I suspect if you're like me, the, the prayers of the Bible can be something we move through somewhat quickly. And yet I, I trust you saw or even began to see last week that Paul's prayers are so unlike my normal prayers. I think most of our normal prayers. Normally my prayers are sort of drive-by prayers. There's something I want to happen and I'm not very specific about how. Somebody I care about needs employment. Lord, get him a job, a good one. 
somebody I care about is sick, Lord, whether you do it miraculously, whether you do it through doctors, however you do it, help them. Somebody's struggling and discouraged. Lord, whether you send your saints to bless them, whether your spirit gives them encouragement, whether it's through your word, help them. And such prayers are good as far as they go. I'm not suggesting those prayers are wrong. Such prayers don't really have much biblical model. And so as we conform our prayer lives to what God has revealed, I would suggest that we add, not subtract. Keep praying those prayers. They're they're great. God's glorified in them. They're good. I take great comfort from Paul saying we don't know how to pray as we ought. And we have help. But let us add on to that what we see in Scripture. And what we see is Paul has made prayer and prayer for the Ephesian church a priority. And this is not a church that has any apparent urgent problem. Unlike some of the epistles where Paul is clearly combating doctrinal error. There's no evidence that the Ephesian church has any particular false teaching going on in their midst, any particular ethical issues. I mean, the Corinthians, you can just line up their list of problems, right, Dave? I mean, it's just where do you start? But here we've got what appears to be a healthy, growing church. And yet Paul is praying for them, and he's praying for them intentionally and intensively. And sometimes we can just be praying for those burning fires, the struggling friend, the grieving family member, the the person in need. And And those prayers are good, but we can sometimes forget praying for central, primary things because they're not grabbing our attention. And Paul makes it clear that there's something very, very important the Ephesian church needs, and he's going to actually in this text this morning broaden that out to all of us because he's writing to the Ephesians, but he's going to pray that they, together with all the saints, which would include us, might comprehend something, might understand something. So we looked last week, and I gave you an outline of Paul's prayer, verses 14 to 21. I'll, I'll remind you of that. In verses 14 to 15, we have Paul's approach to prayer. We talked about he bends the knee, assumes a, a submissive humble posture of prayer and he comes and there's many titles we could give to God he comes before God as the father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named in part because we've just come out of a section on the unity that he's made of all tribes of all peoples in Christ he's reminding them that this is the father of fathers even as he is the king of kings and the first petition and there's three petitions three that something might happen and then those petitions and the first two instances are further explained with infinitive verbs. For those of you who are, who are grammar nerds like me, that's, that's sort of the outline. And so in the first petition, in verse 16, the, the petition is that God might give them something. That according to the Richard's glory, he may grant, is how the ESV translates it. But it's give. And then he uses two infinitives to explain what it is he wants God to give them. The first, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And the, and the second infinitive, the ESV doesn't bring it as an infinitive because it doesn't come out in English for it, but to have Christ dwell in your, to, to, to have Christ dwelling. He wants them to be strengthened and to have Christ dwelling. And each of those infinitives is given an, an agency, how, and aware. So the first is to be strengthened through the Spirit in your inner being. being. And the second, to have Christ dwell, location, in your hearts, agency, through faith. And I suggested that those are two parallel ways of describing the same reality. He's not asking God to give them two things, but he wants to give them one thing, which means having the Spirit strengthen our inner being is very similar, if not identical, 
to having Christ more and more fully dwelling in our hearts through faith. This is his first petition. His second petition and his third petition is what we'll look at this morning. And they're sequential. They build upon each other. Um, I think that being rooted and grounded in love, how verse 17 ends, is actually connected with what came before, not what comes ahead. The ESV puts the that, the second petition's introductory that, in verse 17. So that you being rooted and grounded in love, suggesting I think it comes from it. And, and it makes a certain amount of sense. But I think it's really the result, the result of having the Spirit strengthen us, the result of having Christ take up more and more full residence within our lives, make himself more at home in our hearts, is that we'll be on a firm foundation, rooted in the ground and in love. Now, I think it's clear that that is a precondition to the next prayer request. So there is, there is connection of thought. The result of the one becomes the, the, the precondition for the next. So let's look at the next petition, point three, second petition, that you might be able, or the blank isn't big enough, that you might be strong enough. And you can see how that builds upon the last one. The first petition was God might give you strength. The second petition, that you might now be strengthened to be able to do something. So the, the, the flow of thought's organic and logical. First, they need some strength and power. Then I hope, I pray that they might be powerful enough to do something. They might be able to do something. That's, that's the flow of thought. That, verse 18, you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the height, the length, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So Paul's entire first petition, in some sense, as the logic of the prayer goes, is setting up to enable this next petition to take place. And that's important to grasp. We're going somewhere. We're headed somewhere in this prayer. And again, notice the specificity. You and I would probably be tempted to simply pray for the end result, whatever that might be. But Paul is concerned not just with the end result, but how the church gets there. Okay, they're going to need power from your spirit in their inner being. Lord, give it to them and give it to them liberally. They're going to need Christ to be dwelling more and more in their hearts through faith. And as a result of that, they're going to be grounded and rooted in love. They're going to be built upon this solid foundation of your love for them. Oh, Lord, pray that they might be then able. That's our next petition. They might be able. And he's going to describe what we're able to do, again, using two infinitives. The ESV brings them across pretty clearly. You see them in verse 18. To comprehend, in verse 19, to know. To comprehend and to know. That's why I've titled this message, Praying for Comprehension. All of that initial prayer for power and strength that Christ might dwell is to set up the now the ability that we be in a position, and that's the idea. Now, with Christ dwelling in us, with that strength, with that firm foundation, we might now be in a position to be able to comprehend something, to understand something. That's the flow of the logic. And, and the way he first describes it, point A, is to grasp. To grasp. Uh, the word literally means to take hold of. Can elsewhere be translated to take as one's own. And we have figures of, of speech that work the same way, wrapping your head around something, being able to take hold of something. The concept is something that might be difficult to, to get in possession of, but that the mind might be able to lay hold of firmly, to comprehend. That's the idea. He wants us to be able to grasp or take hold of or comprehend something. And then we get some more descriptions before we get to the what of the how. 
This isn't a prayer request simply for the Ephesian church. Here's where it broadens out to all Christianity. Here's, here's the warrant for concluding not only is this a vital need for them, but it's, it's a vital need for us. Because Paul says, I want you to, that you might be able to have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. So he's addressed the church at Ephesus. He's got all the saints in that region. And now he's saying, not only am I praying this for you all, but I want this for you all, and I want it to happen not just for your church, but for all the saints. And that, and that folds us in as well. This is, this is a priority for all Christians everywhere. This is a priority for us. Paul wants us to be in a position to be able to do something. What he wants us, the first description of what he wants us to be able to do is to be able to grasp, to wrap our heads around it, to mentally take hold of something. He doesn't quite tell us what yet. He's now going to move on to give us some sense of the magnitude. And in what sense might this be difficult, whatever it is that he wants us to understand, in what sense might it be difficult to take hold of? And he moves now to a description of size and volume. Your blank there is going to be magnitude. The first blank is corporate. Together with all the saints, it's a corporate growth, corporate understanding. Now, breadth, length, height, depth, we're dealing with magnitude. This is something that is enormous and immense. And in that sense, it could be hard to take hold of. Um, there's actually an old, at least one Old Testament um, use of this type of word picture. It comes from the book of Job. One of Job's counselors named Zophar says this. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than the heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. So, so Zophar is saying, you think you can wrap your head around Job? All that God's capable of doing? His power and his might is far greater than anything you could understand. And he's using a volume sense of high as heaven, as deep as hell, as broad as you can imagine. And so whatever this is that Paul wants us to be of strength to comprehend is big. It is vast. It is immense. And that starts to give some understanding of why we might need such strength and such power to comprehend it. And notice how he just leaves it hanging. That you might, together with all the saints, comprehend what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, comma, and to know. And you want to say, of what, Paul? And that's partly why I think this structure is clearly, we're, we're defining things, that, speaking of, two, of, of it two ways, we're speaking of the same thing. That what he says next, to know, is not another thing, but another way of speaking of the same thing. That the second infinitive is going to inform the first. That he wants us to comprehend the height, the width, the breadth, the depth. Which is to say, he wants us to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I, I only make that point because an odd commentator or two have suggested, because it, he leaves it hanging, maybe he's talking about the immensity of our inheritance. Maybe he's talking about the glories of the new heaven and the new earth. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think Paul is asking that we might have strength to comprehend two things. Rather, he's speaking of the one thing he wants us to have strength to understand two ways. First, I, I want this to be something that happens for all of y'all. And this is something that is going to be difficult and requires us to have a power because of the magnitude, the greatness, the immensity of what it is you need to understand. Which I think he then names in verse 19. To know 
the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Your next blank to, to know. And part of why I think he uses that first analogy of to take hold of is if we just say to know, we can be tempted to think purely of how we might call intellectual knowledge. And by bringing in notions of scope and size, Paul, I think, is clearly pressing for something beyond a cognitive awareness. Maybe I could use an analogy. You could write an essay about what the night sky looks like on a clear night. And you could write an essay that covers an estimate of just how many stars might be visible, what type of degree of radius you might get, the comparative light to your surroundings. You could write that essay, and somebody could read that essay who's never seen the clear night sky, somebody who grew up in L.A. or something, where there's always smog. And they could read that essay. They might know something. But there's another sense in which you don't really know it till you see it, right? I mean, we get that, that there's a, there's a fuller knowledge that comes from experience, from seeing something. And likewise, we know the love of Christ is great. We sing it, right? This is actually a very difficult message for me to prepare because we're speaking about something so central that we can be tempted to become complacent with it or presumptuous, as Carol said earlier. And the whole point here is that if you think you've got your head wrapped around the love of Christ, you don't. Paul has lined up such a framework, a system of necessary prerequisites to grasp what he's asking for. That if you think you've done this, think again. He's understand. So there's. I want to. I want you to take comfort and be challenged here. On the one hand, if you like me, can sometimes feel a little bad at not being constantly in awe of the love of Christ. We sing about it. I know I'm supposed to be. I know that it's supposed to bring me to tears. I know that it's supposed to just make me swoon. Yet it doesn't always do that. Take comfort in that Paul clearly thinks comprehending this love of Christ is difficult. If it were easy, he wouldn't be praying, Lord, according to the riches of your glory, grant your spirit to their inner man, strengthen them with Christ dwelling in them, being rooted and grounded in faith so that they might be able to comprehend. Like, this is a challenge. And if you are challenged by this, you're in good company. So on the one hand, some, some comfort. If you find, just, yes, I know Jesus loves me, but they get far more excited by who's going to the Super Bowl than I do about that, if I'm honest. On the one hand, take comfort. Like, Paul gets this is hard. Be challenged on the other hand. This is critical. This is no small thing. Pa- Paul is praying night and day for the Ephesian church and for all Christians everywhere. Lord, you've got to give them the power and the strength to understand the height, the width, the breadth, the depth, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So be encouraged that... If you find this difficult, if you don't find it an easy thing to constantly be in awe at the love of Christ, okay, the very nature of Paul's argument assumes, yeah, this is difficult. Be challenged. You can't sit there. If Paul's making such a priority of this, such a priority, then it must be a priority for us as well. This is, I think you'll actually see, this is critical for the rest of the book. So, so grasping, comprehending, taking hold of the love of Christ. 
going beyond the essay of what the starry sky looks like and stepping outside and going, whoa, when you see it, is really important and apparently really hard. You clearly can't do it in your own strength. If you could do this in your own strength, there'd be no need to pray, not just for the Spirit's power, but the Spirit's power in a proportion, if I could use a, a gross analogy, in, the, in a wattage consistent with the riches of God's glory. Like, okay, how much power? I need proportional power to the riches of your glory. That's how much power is necessary, right? Back in verse 16, that according, in keeping with, the riches of his glory he may give. And we talked last week about the difference of giving from your riches and giving according to your riches. For God to give according to the riches of his glory is to give an immense amount. So Paul is praying for an immense empowering the inner man, with Christ dwelling on a foundation of love that then we may be able to comprehend. So this is not something we're doing in our own strength, and yet it's clearly of, of the utmost importance to know the love of Christ. Now, we've got to pause there and ask, okay, what do we mean by the love of Christ? Because the love of Christ could mean two things. It could mean... Um, my love for him, my love for Christ. And Paul, I think, uses that expression that way in uh, 2 Corinthians, where he talks about the love of Christ constrains us. I mean, I can't be certain, but it's entirely possible. Paul saying, my love for Jesus directs my conduct. But I think in the context here, it's far more Christ's love for his church. The love of Christ. The love of Christ that we've just seen for his people, for his bride for his body look at look at just where we came out of in chapter 2 go back to chapter 2 verse 13 but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ Christ suffered a bloody death that you might be brought near you Gentiles for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He's just been teaching them about the love of Christ for them, what Christ has done on their behalf. And there's a sense in which we can cognitively understand that. You could study that, and, and you could pass a test. I could have the ushers hand out a test, and if you study for what the, what things does Paul list Christ has done on your behalf as an act of love? And you could say, okay, number one, he has redeemed us by his blood, and he's two, he's preached peace to us, and three, he's brought us near, and four, he's reshaped and fashioned us in him. You could go through, and you could, you could without any aid of the Spirit, cognitively, grasp what Paul has said, put it into your short-term or long-term memory, and be able to repeat it. That's not what he's praying for. If that's all he were praying for, he wouldn't require such power at such magnitude. The entire 
framing of this prayer sets up how vast, great, and difficult this is. The amount of power that's required. The height, the width, the depth, the breadth, setting up the vastness of the subject for which our minds need to take hold of. The love of Christ, primarily his love for the church. And I say primarily because, well, we'll get to that in a few minutes, because I think that the whole notion of, of seeing Christ's love for, for his church, for, for us, is what generates our love for him. But more on that in a minute. And, and Paul even recognizes that this is a prayer request that despite the amazing level of power that he's asking for, is still impossible to fully achieve. He does that by way of bringing in paradox that surpasses knowledge. I mean, get that. I want you to know what is unknowable. This is, again, why it's difficult to preach a sermon on this. I mean, how do I unpack and communicate what Paul frankly says is unknowable? You you guys can't understand this. Let's go home. So I want to suggest a way of approaching this, that Paul isn't praying for something that can't happen. He's praying for something that cannot be fully accomplished. Um, For those of you who who have any sort of background in math, you may know what an asymptote is. If you've ever seen sort of the XY graph in math and that curve that goes up and down, you know what I'm talking about? That's called an asymptote. And one of the things that is, uh, you're tracking me, Greg, right? Yeah. One of the things that's interesting about an asymptote is if you were to keep following that curve upwards as it went up parallel to that line, it would ever draw near but never actually touch the x or the y axis in either direction. That's, that's how an asymptote works. It's always drawing closer and never touching. And, and D.A. Carson, in, in one of his treatments on a related topic, suggests this as a model for thinking about our approach to knowledge of God. Progress is always possible. We'll never arrive at the destination. There will always be more to understand about the love of Christ, yet real progress is possible. Paul can pray that we make progress even as he freely acknowledges we'll never arrive. And again, that stops us from saying, oh, the love of Christ, I did a three-year study of that five years ago. I'm set. Good. Check. (laughs) Nope. You may have grasped a bit more of the magnitude of the love of Christ. You might have seen new glories but you have not fully achieved this. I I would go even further. I was talking to Pastor Daniel this morning. Even in heaven, I don't think we will fully grasp the unsearchable riches of Christ. I think we'll know it then to make what we know now seem as nothing. But even then, we will not exhaust, I do not believe, the glories of the love of God in Christ. So Paul uses the the, the metaphor of of paradox. So let's, let's rewind where we've come. Paul is praying consistently for the Ephesian church, and not just for them, but for all Christians in general. And he's praying very specifically that God would give a liberal, proportionate to the riches of his glory, gift of power through his spirit to the inner man, that Christ would take up fuller residence in their lives, that as a result, their feet of these believers will be on firm, solid ground. This temple that's being built up at the end of chapter 2, where you're being joined together, built up into a temple, a holy dwelling place, will be built upon this foundation of God's love for us. And that from that vantage point, then, we might be able to grasp, our, our minds might be able to take hold of this immense, vast, and ultimately unknowable love of Christ. That's what he's praying. 
Why, why is that so important? I mean, again, if you're like me, you know you can't question that. It's too central to our faith. But again, if I'm honest, I'm not walking around usually thinking, man, I really need a better understanding of the love of God in Christ. I'd know that's the right answer if he gave me the test. Many of us would know that's the right answer if he gave us the test. Practically speaking, do we walk around acting as though, man, that is what I need. And so I'm hoping the rest of our time this morning, you'll see why it's such a priority for Paul and why it's such a priority for us. Let me pause then and move on to the third petition without further unpacking why this is so important. The third petition, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If you thought the last one was, was stretching and, and asking a lot, <laughs> this, this final petition, Paul wants you and I to be filled with all the fullness of God, by which he means content. What he wants to be filled with? God. And this, I think, is no new petition. Rather, I think, part of the reason why he doesn't explain what he means by that, I mean, if you, if you look at that petition, what on earth does he mean? Be filled with the fullness of God. I think what he means is, if you're strengthened by the Spirit to inner man, if through faith Christ is dwelling in your hearts, and if from that position you are grasping and comprehending with all the saints the unknowable love of Christ, then, in that case, you will be filled with the fullness of God. I think that's why he doesn't go on to explain it any further. This is the end result. And from that position, I think it helped might explain why this is so important. Why is it so critical that you and I be filled to the very brim, dangerously full, Serena? full, right to the top with God. The reason why is this notion of being full sets up images of action. Turn, turn to chapter 5. It's, it's not for nothing that Paul's prayer serves as the bridge from the doctrinal content to the, if you want, ethical content, from the, imperative, from the indicatives to the imperatives, from, from truth to practice. Look at, look at a similar notion of being filled. Verse, chapter 5, 18. Do not be drunk with wine, for that produces the fruit of debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. What happens when I'm filled with the Spirit? And contrary to a lot of the charismatic um, inclinations going on, it doesn't speak anything of, of whether or not we feel giddy or whether or not we, we have ecstatic experiences. What happens when you're filled with the Spirit? It's really straightforward. We address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in the, to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks. All. How do you know if someone's filled with the Spirit? They do these things. Whether or not they feel giddy, whether or not they feel ecstatic, they're addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he launches into the household code. And the clear implication is how can you identify a wife who's filled with the Spirit? Well, verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands. How can you identify a husband who's filled with the Spirit? 
Do you find a husband who loves his wife as Christ loved the church? How do you find children who are filled with the Spirit? They're honoring and obeying their parents, and so on. In other words, the notion of filling and being filled is a setup or a precursor for what comes out of us. What you're full of is what comes out of your mouth and your actions. And so as Paul is bridging the gap to chapter 4, where he's going to start telling us how to walk and conduct ourselves, and, and this is the important principle here, before he can ever get to telling us how to love each other and how to serve each other and what to do, we need to be in a position to be able to do it. And the position that we need to be in to be able to do it is to be filled with, firmly grounded in, the love of God in Christ, with Christ himself in residence in our hearts, with our mind's eye, as it were, in awe of the love of God in Christ for us. The implication, then, is if if you're struggling as a wife submitting to your husband, if you're struggling as a husband loving and serving and dying for your wife, if you're a child struggling with honoring and obeying your parents, if, if any of the commands in the second half of this book are difficult for you, what you probably need is a deeper understanding of the love of God in Christ for you. Chapter 4 isn't chapter 1. This is, this is one of the dangers of Christian self-help books or sermon series, 10 Tips on a Better Marriage. And there can be good wisdom, biblical wisdom, But if you just skip to the second half of Ephesians, there's a reason Paul labors and belabors and stresses this point because he knows they're not going to be able to do what he's calling on them to do in their own strength. They're going to need to first have this type of power, have this type of indwelling of Christ, and have this type of understanding of his love. Look where it goes right to in chapter 4. Sorry, he want you filled with this vision and knowledge of the love of Christ. Christ dwelling in his temple that he's building up in you. And from that vantage point, chapter 4, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Where does that love come from? He just told us. Turn to chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives. How are you supposed to love your wives? Like Christ loved the church. Which means you can't just jump to telling a series on how husbands are to love their wives if you haven't first seen the love of Christ for his church. The very model, husbands, of how you're to love your wives is what Jesus did for his bride, the church, do that. I'm struggling with that. Then why don't you study and better understand what Christ did for the church? That's the rationale. Practically, what does that look like? I'm belaboring this point because I think it's a critical implication. We can so separate knowledge from action. And we can think, oh, um, learning stuff. What's important is doing stuff. When what's important is both. There is a danger of knowing stuff and not doing stuff. And I suggest to you in a biblical understanding, if you think you know something but you don't do something, you don't know it. But there's an equal danger of saying, well, I'll forget the theology. I'll forget the truth. I'll just go love people. Well, without truth to inform your love, you'll do all sorts of terrible things in the name of love. You'll affirm all sorts of evil. You'll, you'll, you'll do all sorts of things wrongly with good intentions without truth to guide it. And everything Paul's going to call on us to do is going to come out and reflect out of us as we see and comprehend the love of Christ. For he's our model. 
And he wants us to be in awe of it. He wants us to be in wonder of it. He wants it to take hold of us even as we take hold of it. He wants it to be big in our eyes. And that is what is going to fuel the engine of obedience. That's why it's critical. So, so how do you do that? If you're like me and you frequently have days where, quite honestly, the love of Christ is not blowing my mind right now. It's not all-consuming right now. What do I do? Well, the most immediate application would be pray a prayer like this. Recognize that's your need. This is one of the reasons why carving out time for Bible reading is so important. You might be, again, tempted to think, I got things to do. I got loving deeds to perform. I got service to give. You got to put fuel in the tank. The reason we read the scripture, one of the reasons should be, Lord, let me see more fully, more clearly. Let my understanding of your love for me and for your people grow so that I may be more filled with the fullness of God that I might go and serve and reflect that and that might come out of me. Out of the abundance of the heart that now speaks, what are you filled up with? This is the connection between the first three chapters and the second three chapters. And, and we can't do it on our own, but you can make it a priority. You can make it a central prayer request. You can carve out time, and you can beg God, Lord God, I, can't, I dare not get up and serve my wife and my children and my family and my church in my own strength. I, I, I'm tired. The, 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 the lesser glories of this world have blinded me. They draw my heart away. Show me your glory and your word. Like Moses on the mountain, show me your glory. Like we sing sometimes on Sunday morning, show us Christ. Let me see, let me understand. By your spirit, give me power to get a fresh sight of the glory of your love for us. That's the implication of what Paul's saying here. And we dare not rush past this to the actual things we need to go do. If you're struggling in some area of your life, this is a key component to faithfulness. There's a lot of practical application. Paul has in the chapters awaiting us. A lot of practical application. And he lays this foundation first. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 come before 4, 5, and 6. And they come through that way for a reason. That's Paul's regular pattern in his letters. Truth, and then how to live in light of the truth. And so just as a, as a way of practical application this morning, I want to challenge you to, to recognize the need. Paul is praying for all Christians. He's praying for you, he, in a sense. He's praying for you. Do you agree with that need? Do you confess as well, this is a need? I, I regularly don't. If I don't remind myself, I mean, that's one of the takeaways I got from this study this week. Is I need to make this. I need to remind myself of this. Jeremy, what you need today more than anything is a bigger understanding of the love of Christ for you and for his people. I need to ask God for it. And I need to know that the place where I see it is in his word. And then... <laughs> Like, like Jacob wrestling the angel, we need to get up in the morning or in the evening or whenever you read your Bible and say, I'm not putting this down till you bless me, till you show me your glory, till I see something wonderful in your word. You pray with the psalmist in Psalm 119, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things in your word. And, and you, you act like people who are desperate to see glory, to see the love of God. That, that's Paul's understanding. That's why he puts his priority. That's why it's so important, and that's why he's so specific. 
because he's teaching us in his prayer what we need to be obedient, what we need to be faithful. Because what that means then is Christian obedience doesn't primarily come out of fear. Yes, fear can serve as a warning at times. And Jesus can talk about don't fear man, fear God. And it's not primarily a sense of gratitude. Because you've done so much for me, I'm going to do something for you. I think the real issue is we see what God has done for us as so lovely and so great in my own little weak way, I want to do that. You mean I could, in some little sense, love my wife in a similar way to the way Christ has loved me? Yeah, I want to do that. Because I'm captivated and delighted by God's love for me. And it's, it's ruling my heart. And so that's part of why I said it's primarily Christ's love for me, but Christ's love for me as I see it is the very thing that generates my love for him because I, I respond, I resonate to it. And it creates my love for him. It, it, it enlarges my love for him. Let's see, um, point B, this is the result of the entire progression of prayer and it becomes point C, the transition from instruction to application. Let's give you a brief tour here. I don't think we're going to get to point five. I think I'll fold it into next week's review, but this is too important. Let me just give you a quick tour of what Paul's already pointed out of how God has loved you. Let's just let's take a look at some of the, let's switch to a different metaphor from stars to a, a mountain range. Let's look at some of the peaks of God's love in Christ for you. Chapter one, verse four. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself. Before there is anything, before he made the world, he knew how sinful and how wretched I would be while I was dead in my sins. He knew that. And yet he set his love on me anyway. And before he said, let there be, he had already predestined me for adoption as a son. I'll make, I'll make that wretch my son. That's the love of God in, in Christ. To the praise of his glorious grace, chapter 2, we were dead. I mean, and, and Paul's again emphasizing our unworthiness. We were dead, we were wretched, we were sinful, we were rebellious. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now in work, and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, which is to say through and through, head to toe, inside and out, children of wrath, deserving nothing but anger, like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. That's the basis, if you turn to chapter 4, for, hey, bear with one another in love. Prefer one another in love. God looked upon you and he looked upon me when we were dead, when we were rebellious, when we were slaves to the enemy, when we were through and through deserving of his anger, and he loved us and he said, be alive Therefore, for two, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. If you find it difficult to bear with other people, get a bigger view of the love of God in bearing with you. That, that's the fuel. Be, be amazed that God didn't snuff you out. 
that he didn't rid the universe of you, but instead he said, I'll make that my son. I'll make that person my daughter. I'll make that dead person alive. Be, be, be entranced by that. Be filled with that. And then maybe we can go out and like be patient with each other and long-suffering with each other. That's the notion. Then maybe husbands can love their wives and die to self, just like Christ gave himself up and died for the church. And as children look to the son's obedience to his father, maybe they can be obedient to their earthly parents. That, that's, the, that's the notion, the logic that's being used here. Uh, and we are, we are going to sing our closing song. We are gonna, absolutely going to sing our closing song, so just give Carol a heads up. But one, one or two more looks here, and we'll move forward. 5-2. Five, 5-2. Two. Five, two. I just want you to see how the love of Christ is the pattern. Do it like that is the logic of the second half of the book. 5-2. Therefore, be imitators of God. Now, there it is. You can't imitate what you don't see. You can't imitate what you don't understand. And walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Which is why Paul spends three chapters to tell us about how Christ loved us. And then says, I'm just praying that you'd get it, that you'd understand it, that it would fill you up, that he'd dwell within you. And only then can I start telling you the things we need to do to each other. Imitate what you've seen. Imitate God. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. 525, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's starting to make sense why the first three chapters appear before the second half. So we're going to close by singing about the deep, deep love of Jesus. Next week, we'll look at this doxology, Paul's closing prayer. The The short version of his doxology is, if we can start doing this, that's how God will be glorified in his church.